0: A reading from the book of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed, according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights The greater light to rule the day, and the lesser light to rule the night, and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. The word of the the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. A
1: reading from the book of Genesis. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm and according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day.
2: We find ourselves uh, up against you, our creator. And in you, we find ourselves coming up against uh, what it means to be us, uh, who we are, who we are designed to be. And And that is both thrilling and frightening. And so, Father, I pray for your Holy Spirit to work in us with clarity, with gentleness, where that's where we, what we need, um, to bring us to a deeper understanding of who we are by clarifying why it is that you made us and give us a sense of your beauty woven into the beauty of our design. And where we need it, set us free. And where we need it, make yourself clear. And so we look away from ourselves and we look to you. So speak in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. we are continuing a series in the book of Genesis. This is the second week we have the same reading. We're going to have the same reading once again next week. Um, last week, I, it was really fun. We uh, <laughs> I don't know if it was fun for you. I enjoyed it. Um, uh, we went over the story of the seven days of creation, um, and uh, one of the things that was really fun is afterwards we had a little uh, I invited those who had questions, especially around science and uh, the story of creation to, to have a chat, which we did over here. Um, loved your questions. They were just fantastic. Um, I don't know whether you found any of the responses helpful, but again, it was great. I enjoyed it. Um, each time we uh, look at this passage and the passages that are that are coming in the next few weeks, they're going to bring up a lot of questions they're going to bring up questions that are not going to be put to rest in a single sermon. And so I want to say that um, as those questions come up, can we please agree to talk about them? Um, Don't don't evade them, uh, but don't be surprised when they're not all addressed in a single sermon. Um, We're going to have times where we do the kind of after-sermon, after-service discussion. I don't think we're going to do that today because everybody's going to be hungry and we want to get down and eat. But... Um, we'll do more of those to come. Okay? Is that fair? Say, yes, Jim. Yes. There we go. It's such a good church. <laughs> All right. Um, we are looking at uh, verses 26 uh, and 27, really, just those. Um, and uh, let me set this up. Um, one of the most obvious questions that's just uh, really important today, it's always important in every age, but it's particularly acute today, is, is this question, um, what does it mean to be human? And uh, that's a question. It's very high octane. It's a big question. And in that, inside that question, there are a thousand smaller questions. Um, We could ask, for instance, uh, uh, the smaller question is, what is it that is unique about being human? What makes us special, if anything makes us special? And in the past, that was often asked as we looked at the, for instance, animal kingdom. Um, We often asked, uh, what is it that makes us different from all the other animals? It's clear that we're very similar to all the other animals in many ways, but maybe there's something that makes us unique. For a while, we thought it was tool making. Maybe it's our intelligence. Maybe it's the fact that we can create art and culture. What is it that makes us unique? And that question is debated. Today, we have to ask that same question only from a different perspective. We ask that question with respect to machines that we have made that are smarter in some measures than we are. So uh, intelligent does, or, um, uh, AI and so forth uh, means that we have to ask that question in a new manner. What is it that makes us unique as humans? It's a way of asking, what does it mean to be human? But then we could also ask that big question, drill down at a kind of ethical level. What does it mean to be human in the sense that um, what uh, what are the ethical obligations that I owe as a human to other humans? Um, How do I treat other people? Uh, How do I treat people who are not like me? Uh, How do I relate to my Uh, cultural opponents? Do I recognize the humanity in people that might be my enemy? Do I recognize uh, humanity in people that I just don't find very useful to me? What does it mean to be human in the sense that uh, I'm asking? How do I as a human relate to other humans? And that's where uh, questions of human rights comes up and social obligations. But it's part of the big question, what does it mean to be human? And then yet again, we could ask that big question, what does it mean to be human at a kind of personal existential level? So I could ask, what does it mean as a human to live a meaningful human life? So we could ask this question from lots of different perspectives. And it's a crucial question, what does it mean to be human? Now, the reason I'm talking about this is because we're looking at Genesis. And Genesis, presents a kind of revolutionary vision for what it means to be human and has been pressing this question and pushing it forward for the last 3,000 years and so we need to listen to it again and here's briefly what I want to show you I I want to argue that um, we'll never really understand what it means to be human until we grasp the claim of Genesis about how God made us in his own image what We'll never understand what it means to be human until we understand the image of God. Or, put differently, if we want to know uh, the meaning of human life and what it is to live a meaningful human life, then we need to try to gain clarity about God's intention in designing human life. Now, that's the big question. But now let's go to Genesis. Take a look at uh, chapter 1, verse 26. It says this, very short. Then God said, let us make man, humanity, in our own image after our own likeness. And then we're going to deal with the next bit next week, but skip down to verse 27. So God created man, humanity, in his own image. Now, if you grew up in church, um, those are probably really, really conventional words for you. If you did not grow up in church, you may have heard those words before as well. It's important that as we come at them, we remember that Genesis was written uh, to um, ancient Israel, and ancient Israel was a minority culture, and they were surrounded by majority cultures that were always influencing their imagination and their way of thinking inevitably. So, uh, to the uh, to the let's say west, they had the Egyptian culture; to the east, they had the Babylonian culture, and We uh, uh, and tradition tells us that the first drafts, at least of Genesis were addressed to Israel just out just after they had come out of Egypt, just after they had been liberated from enslavement in Egypt. And one of the things that that means is that Genesis was addressed to a group of people who had been treated as less than fully human for many hundreds of years. Now think about Egyptian culture for just a minute. Um, The Egyptians were famously brilliant artists. You could go this afternoon to the Metropolitan Museum of Art and you could walk through the Egyptian exhibit and you'll see that they were remarkable. But the thing is, the Egyptians didn't just make art. What they did, this is what all ancient Near Eastern peoples did, is they made sacred images. Everybody say image. There you go. Um, and, and, and they were, they started as statues, you know, you'd, you'd carve a statue, something like that. They were sculptures, and they were meant to depict uh, some sort of Egyptian god, divinity, something like that. And then these statues, they'd be put in uh, inside a temple, but then came the critical moment where the priests would come, and they would recite magical incantations, and the statue would turn into An image. And in the Egyptian mind that was a massive transformation, why was it a massively important transformation because in their Egyptian way of thinking the statue which had been transformed through magic into an image gained a new privilege, a new dignity and a new purpose. Uh, The new privilege of this image was that the image was now filled with the presence of the divinity. It was filled with the power and the presence of Amon-Re or whatever the Egyptian deity might have been. And so it was a privileged artifact. But that privilege then meant that it took on a new and kind of transcendent dignity. It wasn't just a piece of stone it wasn't just a piece of art it wasn't just a beautiful shaped uh, item what it was was now it was an image which meant it shared the dignity of the divinity it represented. It had a remarkable privileged access to the divine and it it bore a remarkable transcendent kind of dignity and that privilege and that dignity led to purpose. The uh, image was meant to do something, it had a job to do and its job was to represent the divine, represent the divinity uh, to the priests or to the Egyptian people or to the world at large. It had a privilege, it had a dignity, and it had a purpose. And that way of thinking filled the minds of the ancient Israelites, except, and this is super important, one of the very odd things about the ancient Israelites is that they weren't allowed to make images their God, the God of Israel, the God that had led them out of Egypt, he forbade them. He did not allow them to create images of him, which was fairly odd. Why? Why doesn't this God, you know, is it that this God is, is he anti-art? Is that it? Why is this God against making images? Well, Keep all that in your mind and go back to verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now, Emmanuel, that is a revolution in the history of uh, religion. And it's a revolutionary view of humanity. Why? Well, think about it. Why doesn't God want an image made of him? Uh, The answer is because he already made himself an image. It's not that God doesn't want his image out there for people to see or to engage with. It's rather that God has already made his own image. God has decided that he is not going to be depicted in stone. He's going to be depicted by living human beings. The God of the Bible is too alive to be depicted by dead stone. Later on in the Bible uh, there's uh, a psalm, a poem, uh, called Psalm 115 and it talks about this. It says, you know, pagan idols, pagan uh, images, they look alive but they're not alive. They've got mouths but they can't speak and they've got eyes but they can't see and they've got ears but they can't hear. And the point is that the idols are as dead as the divinities they're trying to depict but the God of Israel is different because the God of Israel is a God who's so alive that you can't fit the living God into something like dead stone and so what I want you to see can you see that this is a revolution what's happening here Genesis Emmanuel is dismantling paganism And what it's doing is it's taking the idol's uh, privilege and dignity and purpose and taking it away from the statues and the lifeless images and infusing it into the human person. And it means that God has chosen you to be his image in the midst of this world. And you gotta just consider imagine how transformative that was for Israel's identity. Um, Before this point, Israel's main identity for hundreds of years has been slave in Egypt. But now, it's not just that Israel is free and liberated, it's now that Israel has become the living God's true image in the midst of this world with all the privilege and the dignity and the purpose that's implied in being the image of God. And of course, it's really important that you see that Genesis does not restrict the image of God to the people of Israel. It's distributed throughout all humanity, every ethnicity and nation. So slow down with me and let's try to unpack this a little bit. If humanity is made in God's image, um, then it means on the first that humanity bears a remarkable privilege. What's the privilege? It's the privilege of access to God. Um, If we're God's image, then it means that we are called to know God in a profound kind of communion. Uh, What do I mean by communion? I I don't, in this sense, mean uh, the sacrament we're going to observe later. What I mean is um, a relationship. Uh, Julie Canlis is a theologian uh, who describes biblical communion as intimacy with differentiation. Uh, So um, there's intimacy between two persons who are in some ways alike, but in some significant ways, dissimilar and the differentiation and the dissimilarity actually enhances the intimacy rather than undermines the intimacy. And that idea is embedded in the idea of us being the image of God, an image is not the same thing as the thing it's depicting. And so we and God are different and distinct. There's a profound differentiation between the two. And yet, that differentiation between us is actually meant to enhance our intimacy, our communion, rather than undermine it. So we're very different from God. God makes, we are made. God gives, we receive. That's the whole structure of grace. God is truth, goodness, and beauty. Uh, we reflect those realities. And our difference enhances the intimacy. And our unique uh, privilege is that God chose us out of all the other creatures that he made, God chose us to be the one species capable of enjoying communion with God. There may be many things that makes us different from AI, many things that make us different from animals, but at least this is one, that we were made for communion with God. And now let me show you something else can you notice the gift that's implicit here this privilege is a gift of grace why do i say that in genesis it's not as if god is creating and then he stumbles upon upon uh, this species called human and says oh my goodness this one's got it i mean this one's got the right stuff I think this one deserves to, be, to serve as my image. But that's not what God does. God gives us this privilege by an act of his free choice and his grace alone. And one of the things that that means is that uh, the image of God is not immediately tied to our capacities. So uh, if I, if somebody has more mental capacity, that doesn't make them more the image of God. If someone has less mental capacity, that doesn't make them less the image of God. Somebody might be uh, too young to be conscious, or someone might be too old to remember their name. But in both cases, they are equally the image of God because it's by grace and not by our achievement or capacities. And that privilege of being called into communion with God leads to a remarkable dignity. Look at verse 27. This is the first poem in the Bible. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. There's equality, there's mutual necessity and there's biology all implied there you see the equal dignity there, male and female? It is astounding that an ancient text like this is so explicit, right up front, the first mention of humanity rolls this absolute equality between male and female. Uh, Thomas Jefferson said, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. And he was right that all people are created equal. But he was wrong. It's not self-evident. It never has been self-evident. It wasn't self-evident when he said that. And in that very moment when he was speaking, he was enslaving people as he wrote it. And all around us today, the equal dignity of humanity, male and female, is called into question perhaps more frequently. And yet over the last 3,000 years, Genesis has told us that every male body and every female body from every ethnicity bears the dignity of God's own image and that God values every single body, and so must we. And one of the things that that means is that the equal dignity between male and female is written on the very first page of our Bible. And it's got to be the starting point for when we ask questions of ethics. As a human, how shall I relate to other humans? We begin by honoring the dignity of every human being and every human body. Whether they are like us or whether they differ from us, whether they are cultural allies or whether they are cultural opponents, whether we agree or whether we deeply disagree, they bear God's image and God demands that we honor their dignity. And we are called by this passage to affirm both the equality and the mutual necessity, we really need each other, Emmanuel. We are not individuals all as islands alone. And this also has implications for how we relate to our own body. Because this means that biology matters. It means that in a deep way, our biology is a gift from God. That he has designed us, even our biologies, to have a role in God's plan in the midst of this world. And that means that our bodies are not entirely our own. So being made in God's image, there's a remarkable privilege. We're called into communion with God. There's a remarkable dignity that God bestows through that privilege upon every one of us. But it also means that we have a purpose. And the purpose of God's image, we we bear the image of God because we've got a mission. It's a call to reflect God's character and God's goodness and God's beauty and God's truth into the world through everything that we do. It's a remarkable way in which uh, the human body is God's chosen instrument to display his beauty in the midst of this created world. And that happens as we enjoy communion with God, that privileged access to God, and then we bear the dignity that he gives us by grace, and then we go out and we're to reflect his beauty like tilted mirrors that on the one hand is looking at God and on the other hand is looking out into the midst of this world. What does it mean to live a meaningful human life? Know God and reflect God. But all of it is not so simple, is it? Because there's a huge problem. And there's a huge problem just lurking just beneath the surface, because as soon as we start talking about the image of God, my guess is that you, you, you're already feeling this, the minute we start talking about the image of God of bearing a privilege and a dignity and a purpose that God gives us, if we dig down underneath the surface of any one of those things, we'll find that we're stirring up all kinds of pain and guilt and shame in the midst of our lives and a thousand questions. Because for some of us, we have not experienced, you know, other people reflecting God's beauty to us. For some of us, the first memories that we have are of somebody using their body over and against us in a way that perpetrated terrible horror. What does that mean? How do we deal with this in a world like we live in? And if we say that our bodies bear a remarkable dignity, if that's true, why is it that many of us are so, feel so alienated from our bodies? Many of us look at our bodies and they don't feel like gifts. They sometimes feel like prisons that we need to escape, or sometimes they feel like opponents we, that are more like enemies than a gift from God. Um, sometimes our bodies feel so flawed that we desperately feel the need to modify it in one way or the other, but at the end of the day, the thing that our bodies often do not feel like is God's good gift. What does that mean? And we could go on. But the reality is this, Emmanuel, there is a a massive chasm between our lived experience and Genesis chapter 1, and there's a very important reason for that. You and I have never experienced Genesis chapter 1. This is a reading that describes God's plan, but it's not describing our lived reality. That's going to come in the chapters following. And part of the reason that our experience is so radically different from the vision that this is describing is because we live in a world where the disease of sin has gone endemic. Uh, Sin is many, many things, um, but one way to think of it is this. It's a little bit like a virus. It's a little bit like a disease. Um, I don't know anything about medicine, Um, but I I think you can tell me later um, that different viruses sometimes go after different systems in the body. Sin is like a virus that always targets the image of God. Sin begins by disrupting our privileged Communion with God. Sin persuades us that God cannot be trusted, and sin leads us into an alienation from God. And so that privilege no longer is part of our experience. And then with that alienation from God, sin goes after our sense of dignity. Sin blinds us to our own dignity, perhaps uh, through the sin that we have experienced from other people. And then as the disease matures, sin blinds us to the dignity of those around us. And so we no longer see them as valuable in their own right, but sin wants to blind us so that we see other people as bodies to exploit or enemies to hate. And by that point, sin has already disrupted our ultimate purpose because we end up not reflecting God's beauty. We end up reflecting a a terrible distortion of God through the sin that we perpetrate on others. And this is why whenever we discuss the image of God, all of our pain and our shame and our guilt get stirred up. And this is why we're going to have to walk with each other in this, Okay. We need to be healed. And the only cure is Jesus. Colossians chapter 1 says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He's the perfect image. He's the image we're not. The human body is God's chosen vehicle of self-expression. And so Jesus, the Son of God, took upon himself a human body. And his humanity came through a woman. And Jesus as a human knew perfect privileged access to God and in, he knew a perfect intimacy And yet he gave that intimacy up and he did that for a purpose because when he went on the cross, he took the virus of sin to himself with all of its symptoms, with all of our alienation and all of our guilt and all of our shame. He came upon him and he died under the weight of it. It was terminal, Emmanuel. But he rose again and he rose again with the gift of dignity to bestow upon those who belong to him. He gives us his own dignity, and his dignity restores our dignity. And so today, Jesus comes to us, and he comes perfectly presenting God's beauty to us, so that when you look at Jesus, you see the God who's really there, the God who is alive, the God whom we need. Jesus is our healer. And he wants to restore the image in you. And for some of us, well, all of us, all of us suffer the symptoms of sin. Sins we have committed, sins committed against us. And if you feel alienated from God, Jesus Christ, the true image, wants to come and repair and bring you back into the privilege for which you are made. And if you cannot see your own dignity... Jesus wants to tell you uh, that he loves your body. He loves your person, the whole of you. And I recognize that that's hard for some of us to hear. And if that's hard for you to hear, we'd love to walk with you through that. It brings up so many things, doesn't it? I know it does. And they're different things for each of us. But it may well be that the frontier of your spiritual growth is going to come as you learn to discover the dignity that Jesus gives. It takes courage. Jesus is the image that restores and heals the image in us. And as he heals us, he always heals us by bringing us back into the intimacy for which we are made with the Father. The healing work happens in worship. The healing work happens when you're before your Father who loves you, every part of you. His love penetrates down to your deepest guilt and your deepest shame and the the places of your life where your eyes want to dart away and you don't want to make eye contact and you don't want to go there. And even to those memories that you don't want to remember, the mercies and the grace and the love of the Father reaches down there and where the Father reaches, healing happens. And there in the midst of communion with the Father, where you are being healed in those deepest places, that's going to, be, that's going to become the story that then you are able to share with others in appropriate ways. And as the, the story of your own healing becomes clear, you're going to be released to reflect the beauty of God in unprecedented clarity. And so this is the work that Jesus wants to do in us. He wants to make us humans fully alive. He came that we might have life and have it to the abundance. Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emanuel Anglican Church. Our church exists to see and describe and to reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city, and I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel, and if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emanuelanglicannyc.com give.